It's true, man, that's a surefire thing. Dewey defeats true, man, say it with a swing. Dewey defeats true, man, Republican victories here. Just as sure as the Red Sox will win it all this year. So, Dewey defeats Truman is, I don't know if it's the most famous incorrect headline. I can't think of a more famous one. It's almost a placeholder, the generic placeholder for headlines that are wrong. Um, and we're going to talk about all kinds of headlines today, not just the ones that are wrong. But headlines often shape our attitudes, our understanding of the news that we're absorbing more so even than the copy that's in the body of the text uh, that it was usually written by somebody who did not write the headline. Um, anyway, <laughs> I'm too close to this subject. Like I just realized I've been writing newspaper columns for 41 years and I've never written a headline for any of them. I'm too close to this subject. Fortunately, we have someone somewhat more dispassionate, although he's got a lot of the same experiences when you get right down to it, to get us started here. And that's Tom Jones, uh, the uh, senior media writer for Pointer, uh, one of the places where journalism is analyzed and studied. So Tom Jones, first of all, welcome to our show. Hey, thanks so much, Colin. Thanks for having me. So there's, there, you know, it's absolutely the case that um, headlo- headlines often become indelible in a certain way. Sometimes it's because uh, the New York Post ran, you know, topless body found. No, it's headless <laughs> body found in topless club. I always get that one wrong. Right. Headless, headless body found in. But, you know, maybe a good place to start here. Uh, and I think it's just right before my journalism career, my newspaper career started. And I'm probably, uh, I think you're probably younger than I am. But in, so in 1975, uh, the New York Daily News responding to some things that Jerry Ford had said uh, about providing the city with relief, uh, ran a headline that said, Ford to City, Drop Dead. It was all, right. all caps and, you know, it was tabloid style, great big, huge. And it, although Ford had never said Drop Dead. But Tom, we, we, you just I heard you exclaim, you remember that it became the story, even though it wasn't the story. Ford had said drop dead to New York City. Right. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that's, it's one of the more famous ones you were mentioning at the top here when you were talking about the most famous headline, wrong headline, Dewey defeats Truman. But when you talk about famous headlines of all time in any newspapers, you know, Ford to New York City, drop dead. That is one of the more memorable ones. And as you mentioned, I, I'm, I was a longtime sports columnist before I started doing this job. And like you, you've been writing columns for, you know, four decades or whatever. It's it's frustrating that as a writer, the headline sometimes overtakes the body of the work. And and I've many times have had complaints from readers and saying, how could you write that? And I said, wait a minute, that's not exactly what I wrote. So well, that's what the headline said. And I, <laughs> and I have a hard time arguing back with them. Uh, it's a little bit different when it's in print, where right where people can see immediately what's there. It's changed with online now that people actually have to click on that headline, and therefore they think that whatever's in the headline is basically what's said in the story. Right. I mean, there are sort of pluses and minuses to e- each model, uh, including right. the fact that if your headline's wrong, and we'll get to the most 
recent example of that in just a second here. But if your headline's wrong, you have an opportunity to modify it. Occasionally, back in the old days, a newspaper could do that. There was an instance where, again, the New York Post um, mistakenly uh, identified Dick Gephardt as John Kerry's running mate, when in fact it was John Edwards. And um, they just did a second printing, and, and, and the headline said something like, you know, uh, <laughs> Kerry has picked his running mate. And then someone said something like, really, this time? I mean, they made a joke. <laughs> yeah, I've got it right here. Kerry's choice. Dem picks Edwards as VP candidate, parentheses, all caps, really. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, with with a tab that can, be, can maybe put out an extra, you can do second printings. But typically, in the old print model, whatever the headline was, you were going to live that live with that for all eternity, right? Right, exactly. And that's where we, we come up with the famous Dewey defeats Truman. And a lot of the problems that print editions uh, of, of newspapers had was that they were on a really tight deadline. And a lot of times that while somebody's reading that newspaper at six or seven o'clock on a morning, that headline was written six or seven hours earlier back at midnight when maybe the story looked to be a certain way or they thought that they had the story that they had and they would have to go ahead and just run that headline at that moment. And it, it sometimes seven hours later, that headline was not true anymore. Uh, it's not an excuse, but that's where we've seen many of the mistakes made that somebody looked at a clock and said, hey, we got 30 seconds to get this thing off the floor. And if we don't have a headline now, we're in trouble. Um, and unfortunately, uh, or or fortunately, I should say, now with online, we can change them almost immediately. Yeah, you know, getting ready for this, I was trying to look for a Titanic sinking headline to make a different point, a point about how in 1912 there'd be just so many subheads down below right. that was almost the whole story. But while I was looking for that, I came across the front page of something called The World. I believe it's an edition of the Vancouver Sun. Banner headline, Titanic sinking, no lives lost. Subhead. Passengers transferred to Cunard Liner Carpathia. All are now safe. Subhead, subhead, Titanic is now on her way to Halifax. <laughs> and I'm thinking, wow, there must have been a meeting in the newsroom of that newspaper the next day thinking, we've got a lot of work to do today. And that's an example of what you're talking about. They're up against deadlines. It's a West Coast newspaper uh, that should actually create a little extra time. <laughs> but, but it, but it <laughs> I mean, didn't. But, I mean, really, we're looking at technology from 120 years ago where yeah. the information was not readily available. But even today, and not to take, you know, a, a what was a, you know, we're talking about some light headlines like Dewey defeats Truman into turning into something more specific, like that's a little bit darker, obviously a lot darker uh, with the, the shootings in Maine recently, where it was really unclear, okay, how many are dead? Uh, how many are injured? Is the, is the person still alive? We go back in your area of the country with the, with the Boston Marathon bombing, how much that story was changing literally by the minute. And as news organizations are trying to update their websites, you want to get the best and quickest information out there. At the same time, sometimes you don't know everything. Sometimes the story is changing as you're working on it. And that's where headline writers often run into trouble is we're trying to capture readers, trying to tell them, here's exactly what's going on, even though, unfortunately, we don't always know what's going on. Yeah. And I mean, we have two sets of warring instincts. I mean, we've all been through a process, a career indoctrination process over the decades that tells us, get the story as fast as you can and get it out. Uh, I, I would say, start for me, starting with 9-11, I added 
slow down. Um, slow down, mm-hmm. or actually err on the side of not getting the story out. If you, you're not sure you know what you're talking about. Uh, but it's a hard instinct. The first one's a hard instinct to fight. So let's talk about exactly what you're talking about right now. Uh, it happened no- notoriously quite recently uh, with the New York Times covering the Gaza hospital explosion. So the Times goes up initially with Israeli airstrike hits Gaza hospital killing 500, Pal- Palestinian health ministry says. Uh, and then Israeli intelligence disputed the claim. The Times altered their headline. Israel and Palestinians blame each other for blast at Gaza hospital that killed hundreds. The thing is, even if you change the headlines, Tom, you can't really get all the toothpaste back in the tube. You can't unring the bell of the people who saw the first headline. Exactly. And I think I think where the Times initially ran into trouble on this story is was the same thing that a lot of us thought is okay, you hear explosion in Gaza at a hospital. You would assume that, that the, the rocket that, that did the damage came from outside of Gaza. The assumption immediately being, and this is the worst thing you can do as a, as a news organization, is to assume that you know the story before you know the story. And the assumption was, well, this must have been launched from Israel. Uh, I Looking back and, and some of the reporting that's been done since then, there was an internal Slack message uh, going on between people at the New York Times, where somebody said, hey, are we sure about this headline here? And the answer was, well, we're attributing it to somebody. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. what they were doing was attributing it to Hamas. And it was a, they were immediately taking their word for it. Now, they they could always fall back and say, well, we're just quoting them what they said. But obviously, Hamas has a stake in this story. So you don't automatically assume that they're giving you the truth or that what you're printing is absolutely true. And so that's where the New York Times ran into trouble here. They can later say, hey, we attribute it to somebody, but the source was not reliable in this particular case. And as we've since found out, it's unlikely that the strike came from outside of Gaza, that it that it was probably something that happened something that happened inside of Gaza and, and probably something that that Hamas did. Um, either way, as you mentioned, they changed the headline as soon as they could. I get that they wanted to get it up there quickly, but I, I've always felt like in these moving situations and breaking news situations, you're better off to go with a boring headline. Mm-hmm. You're better off to go, just give me the facts. Explosion in hospital kills X number of people or hundreds fear dead in explosion. Keep it as simple as you can. And then you can always go back later and add to it when you get more confirmed information. But like you just said, Colin, once you put that out there, even when you change it later, it's hard to put that toothpaste back because the that headline's already been out there and circulating in public. Yeah. At minimum, you're going to have to deal with the fallout of having run that headline. A lot of people, uh, as was the case here, want to know how that happened, why that happened, uh, what other instincts that accident betrays to the rest of us. Uh, and so you're just opening up a, a huge mess for yourself. See, in a conflict like this, Colin, not to interrupt you, but in a conflict like this where there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of unsettling feelings about this. There's a lot of controversy surrounding this. And there are people you know, who, who are looking at this wondering, okay, does somebody have an agenda here? Do, do, when that's somebody, I'm talking about the New York Times or news organizations. Once that headline gets out there, it weakens, I think, the credibility in the mind of some people. I totally get how these headlines get out there. These people are on deadline. They're trying to get it up quickly. Maybe they're not giving it as much thought as they need to. And they didn't honestly feel like they were doing anything wrong. But it, to the public, when you put a headline out there that then you eventually have to walk back or change, 
then they say, see, there we go. There's the media again, not getting the story right. It does damage the credibility of not only that news organization, but of all media. Yeah, and I'm totally with you on the idea of the boring headline. I think when we, you and I launch our journalism startup with all robot reporters, we'll tell the <laughs> robots that. Just be, be boring at first, uh, and then we can always punch it up later. But that also runs against the green of the modern trend towards clickbait and or SEO, search engine optimization. There's a lot of data science now even to like how to write a headline that will attract the interest of bots and Google and all this kind of stuff. And, and all of that goes against the grain of sober, responsible, and sometimes boring caution. Uh, I mean, we're, we're in, if possible, a worse uh, era than the one that produced afford to city drop dead. And I also believe that headline writing is a, is a tremendous skill that not oh, yeah. a lot of people have. You know, I, I've written columns for 30 years. You've written columns for 40 years. I very rarely write a headline. And when somebody comes to me and said, what would be a good headline on this? I always tell them, I don't know. I can give you a thousand really good words, 1200 really good words. I can't give you six really good words. And I think a lot of writers feel that way. And I don't, I don't know how you are calling about like, to come up with a headline that's that's going to get people interested. I will occasionally write a headline for my newsletter when I'm always telling my editor, please change this because it's the best I can do. <laughs> and often it's it's really not very sexy and it and it is changed and and it's much better. I just can't do it. And I don't think there are a whole lot of people out there who are really, really good at headline writing. It seems to be one of those skills that either you have it or you don't. It's like I don't know, it's like hitting a baseball. You can teach people a little bit, but at the end of the day, you either have the God-given talent to do it or you don't. Right. And when we work at newspapers, we should say when we work at newspapers or, or other kinds of print models like that, there's a copy desk. Um, and after a while, you know which copy editors are good and which ones are going to have trouble. And you might even keep an eye on that to see which one is doing it. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I agree with all of that. And what I typically do is I, I would say to the copy editor, I would give them the mission impossible thing. I would say, you know, you're free to write any headline you want. If it's a bad headline... I will take no responsibility for it. I will disavow all knowledge of you tomorrow morning. Yeah, let me ask you a question, Colin. Like you read, you had a column that was syndicated and they go out, right? I mean, yeah. they go into different newspapers. And I've seen situations where syndicated columnists have had a headline in one newspaper that was really well done and really captured what the column was about. And in another newspaper, the headline was like, wait a minute, that's really controversial. And it's not exactly what the column said. It's the same column, mm -hmm. but there are two different headlines. And one of them really might get you in trouble. I don't know if that ever happened to you in your career. Oh, yeah. But I mean, at a certain point, I don't know, get by, get me in trouble. You know, I always say, yeah, yeah. we don't have a patient on the uh, on the table here. <laughs> that's um, true. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit about, we have just a tiny amount of time left, but, mm -hmm. but why not just talk about sort of how a headline either works or doesn't work? So uh, I'm going to take a, a piece by a fairly obscure writer people probably haven't heard of. Uh, and so the headline says, Gannett hired a Taylor Swift writer. Now what? Question mark. Yeah. And then there's a subhead. Burning questions about access, timing, target audience, and more abound. The coverage will be fascinating to watch. Uh, I'm just kidding this time. <laughs> this <is a> <laughs> and I actually did write that headline. You did? Okay. <laughs> so so talk about that. There's there's that idea of the um, interrogatory uh, headline. I think there's sort of two schools of thought about kind of now what? Question mark. Yeah, on, on my particular one, again, I was trying to capture what the column was about, which was, okay, now that they, it, the news, the headline and the news story, the column that I wrote wasn't that they hired somebody. 
It's that they hired somebody, but what's that job going to look like? And so that's where the words now what came up to me. And I thought it would be something that, again, yeah, yeah, there was a little bit of clickbait idea, you know, attitude behind that is I want people to to come here and see what this is going to be about, what the what the Taylor Swift job is going to be about. Um, and so that's where that headline came from. Again, I'm not great at these headlines, but I wanted to, to make it more than because it really started off as Gannett hires Taylor Swift writer. And that was it. And then I added the now. What oh, see, that, that's it, a great example. Yeah. That headline, the, the original headline kind of sucks. Uh, yeah, although, it does. although I would yes, say to, I would say to the SEO people, look, I put Taylor Swift in it. Shut up. You know? <laughs> <laughs> There's your clicks, you know. But but yeah, when you when you put in now what, I, I think you've got, uh, uh, you know, a much different thing and a really terrific. Now, thing. Now, I could have gone a little bit further and said something like why I why the Taylor Swift new Taylor Swift writer shouldn't be trusted or the problems facing the new Taylor Swift writer, because that's really what the column was about. I, I, I had some issues with the hire, um, but I thought it would be better just off to, to go off with the more, um, it's a little bit more generic, but the now what, at least the question headline, I've always liked question headlines. Um, and that's why I think I went with that one there. All right, Tom, uh, you and I could have a really long talk about all this stuff over a couple of beers, but we don't have any beers and I don't have any time. But Tom Jones, we're so lucky to get you. Pointers, senior media writer, I'm sure he'll be back. We're going to take a little break right now. We're going to talk more about the Digiverse and what it's done to headline writing. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. We're back. Now, headlines obviously have an existence that spans hundreds of years, but you can also maybe suggest that the existence can be cut like a sandwich into two pieces. Uh, and the second much smaller piece is the arrival of digital technology, of the internet, uh, of a very different way of consuming news and other forms of information. Here to talk exactly about that is Zizi Papakarisi, professor and head of the communication department and professor of political science at the University of Illinois at Chicago. She's the editor of Trump and the Media, and her newest book is After Democracy, Imagining Our Political Future. We may have to have you back for that too, but let's talk about headlines for a second. So headlines really, they are an old creature uh, from the earliest stages of newspapers. Although if you look at newspapers over hundreds of years, they do change. The nature of headlines uh, in the Victorian era is different from, say, in 1930 uh, here in the U.S. 
But maybe talk about how you see the purpose of a headline, both ideally and maybe practically. Hi, thank you for having me. Yes, as you mentioned, you know, headlines have been with us for many centuries. Their purpose is to frame an issue. So they work like a lens. They introduce a way into the story, a way for people, for readers to make sense of the story. And they will always, therefore, have a point of view or a POV, <laughs> as we often see in uh, TikTok videos. So we're kidding ourselves if we're thinking that headlines are not going to have a point of view. But what we have to understand is that they must be written in earnest with seriousness and with a strong commitment to being truthful and being candid in their coverage. Although I think it's important to make a distinction. It could be an antiquated uh, distinction at this point, an obsolete distinction. But for many, many, many years, there was a distinction between tabloid versus broadsheet. So a broadsheet is like the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or the Boston Globe. These are uh, newspapers that tend to, first of all, have a lot of stories on their their front page. uh, And the headlines are typically informational in nature. They are attempting to convey pretty straightforwardly, with some exceptions, uh, the contents of the story. Um, Tabloids are things like the New York Post, the Boston Herald. They tend to have just one story and not even really a story, often just a headline and a picture uh, on page one. And, And here, the headlines maybe don't entirely fit the description you just gave, ZZ. So we get headlines like headless body found in topless bar, um, Mm -hmm. which although it's, I I suppose, an attempt to convey a certain amount of information, there's, first of all, a kind of gallows humor to the whole thing. And there's also an attempt to reach us more through our viscera than through our thought process, I would argue. But say what you think. Sure. You know, they have to be short. They have to be clear. They have to be quick. So there's so many things that can go wrong there. <laughs> if things go well, you know, you end up with an excellent headline that sums up the gist of a particular issue or of an event. But just like with everything uh, in life, the same things that can make something very, very good can make it also very bad. So the trick is the right balance, you know, the right mix of all the, the different ingredients that make for good, for strong journalistic writing. It's not an easy task. You know, headlines are not easy. They're one of the toughest things about the news business and news storytelling. Yeah, and, and they they have a different purpose from narrative anywhere, anywhere or, the, or at least they can, it strikes me. I mean, you know, I don't know, local woman has a fair, comma, takes arsenic, exclamation point, is a headline for Madame Bovary, but it's not the narrative of Madame Bovary. A headline has to do something a little bit different than the whole narrative. Flaubert is telling us a story with all kinds of colors and characterizations. The headline can't do that. It kind of implicitly has to make a choice every time. And ZZ, it seems to me the choice can be different, too. The choice, I mean, you know, five different headline writers will write five different headlines for the same text. Absolutely. Um, You know, which is why it's essential to understand that it's impossible to write a headline or to present a headline and set aside uh, one's own point of view. You know, what's important to understand is that the point of view then becomes part of the story that's being told. I think the problem here is that we often think about headlines in relation to objectivity. And we think about objectivity as this two-sided affair. And it's not, you know, being objective 
doesn't mean that you are quoting or that you're being, uh, you're devoting equal attention to both sides of the story. You know, in real life, some things don't have two sides. They just have one side. And also most things have many different sides to them. And so these are all things that complicate the ability to put together a headline that sums up, again, the gist of the issue in a way that's striking, you know, in a, in a way that pays attention to the economy of attention, to the fact that, you know, yes, we still have, you know, type tabloids and legacy newspapers, but we're also operating in the world of uh, clickbait headlines, uh, fast news feeds that are constantly being refreshed. And of course, you know, measuring attention in the terms of in terms of clicks and eyeballs that are hitting a particular headline and clicking on it. Yeah. And with that in mind, with the attention economy in mind, let's go back for just a second to the old fashioned dichotomy between the broadsheet and the tabloid. The broadsheet is, I mean, the New York Times, it is the hope of the New York Times that you will have it delivered to your house every day or the Hartford Current or the St. Louis Post-Dispatcher, whatever. Uh, It'll be delivered to your house every day. Ideally, they don't have to worry quite so much uh, about using headlines to drive sales or engage or or gain an advantage advantage in, in, in an attention economy. Tabloid headlines for a century were kind of about the existing attention economy, which was a newsstand or a kid, you know, walking between cars in a traffic jam, yelling extra, extra, and then yelling out a headline. There there was an idea that you would drive individual issue sales of a tabloid by having a very powerful headline and 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 thus attracting people's commerce. And in a way, the internet tipped that to a point where almost any publication could begin to adopt that attitude, right? I mean, it became a question of, you really are competing for somebody else's, uh, for somebody's click of their mouse when you write a headline in a digital space. But say some more about that. Yes, of course. And, you know, as you pointed out, newspapers have always competed for attention. You know, that's part of the game, whether you're writing for a newspaper that appears in print and, you know, lands on your doorstep or whether you're writing for a newspaper that's digitally delivered and um, shows up on your daily feed, on your cell phone, you know, that you're scrolling through as you're, you know, taking public transportation, let's say, to work. It's always about competing for attention. But what social media, what online media add to the equation is the element of speed, the element of intensity, they pluralize the news space with many, many different ways of delivering the news to us. So it's not necessarily that it's not an attention game anymore, but it's a much more competitive attention game and a much more intense attention game. You know, you see journalists are not, no longer have the privilege of, of being the first ones to report the story or the only ones to tell the story. Yeah, and I I think in that environment, writing a headline becomes kind of a needle-threading exercise because if you tell too much, you basically are yielding to the the reader's temptation to not click through to the story, not read the story. If the headline kind of sums up both the facts and the attitude about the facts – uh, too completely or even <laughs> remotely completely, uh, a certain percentage of the potential audience is not going to engage with your stuff. So y- you probably need to, on the one hand, 
titillate people or just engage their attention somehow, but not tell them so much that they don't feel any need to read the story. For sure. You know, I mean, headlines need to have a little bit of drama, you know, and they most likely will, you know, they're, they're written by people and anything and everything that we write will have that aspect of human drama. But the tricky part, as you point out, is combining, you know, the business and the obligation, right? The commitment to truth telling with the just the right dosage of drama that makes a headline accurate and it also makes it human. Yeah, and I think accurate is pretty subjective. And so I'll let me just give mm-hmm. some personal experience here. So I, I started out working in the newspaper business. Uh, I had my first newspaper job in 1976. I'm so old. There were actually hot lead machines, typesetting machines. You have a very young of. voice, though. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, I'm 152 years old, unfortunately. But so... You know, headlines were a certain thing, and and this is kind of a broadsheet newspaper, and and they there was a level of responsibility that was almost insisted on, and they weren't really in the same kind of attention economy. It was a one newspaper town, so I mean, I worked a lot of other places since then. For a while, I was a freelance writer. To, and regular contributor to Salon. And Salon.com is an example of a digital native media. In other words, it never existed in any other form. It's always been online. And I, and I can actually say other writers for Salon, used to freak out at the headlines. We, we should also remind people, writers typically don't write their own headlines. Somebody else does that. So we would freak out at the headlines on our stuff. I mean, I remember at one point, there was a headline, they'd asked me to write a piece that involved Patton Oswalt, the comedian, and the headline said, Internet Troll Patton Oswalt, which is not something I had called him in the body of the story. Or they would seize the most inflammatory word in my story. I remember there was a headline about Aaron Sorkin that referred to him or his writing or something as masturbatory, which was probably in the body of the text, but it wasn't the real thrust of the argument that I was necessarily making. And and it was like you were reading a headline that really belonged on a different story. But they had succumbed, I think, to that fever, that gold rush fever, and particularly in the early days of digitally native publications. It was like, how can we get the most eyeballs here? And, and I think something does get hurt in that process. Maybe you could react to that idea, though. Yes, you know, writing headlines, it's, I mean, we have to acknowledge it's a little bit of an impossible task. And I can't think of a single human being who excels at writing headlines, you know, who can be relied upon to produce, you know, and churn out headline after headline that, you know, does all the right things (laughs) and at the same time manages to grab someone's attention. So I think the trick here is to acknowledge that, you know, to acknowledge that headlines will be imperfect. And then for us as readers to just read past the headline. And to not have just as strong as and as immediate reactions to headlines. So, you know, a good part of the responsibility, you know, some part lies, of course, with the news organization, but a good part of it lies with us as readers. Some things are happening uh, even in that online world right now. And I, I think one thing that's borderline revolutionary was that what we now refer to as X decided Mm. in the late summer, and I think it started up, though, maybe in October, they did this really remarkable thing, which I don't think they warned anybody very much that they were going to do, which is that now when you paste a link into a posting on X, 
the headline, if there's a headline in that link, it just gets eaten up. And instead, there's kind of an image there uh, with a little reference to what it's from. But you don't see a headline anymore, which Musk said was for aesthetic purposes or aesthetic reasons. I I tend to distrust a lot of things that Mm -hmm. Elon Musk says, and I probably distrust that one. But we're suddenly talking about a very different thing where the carefully written headline is not even available for anybody to see without clicking in this particular environment. What, What did you make of that? I think that's the latest uh, iteration in the attention game. You know, it's something that happens with digital technologies is, you know, you use the same trick over and over again, audiences become aware of the trick and they don't fall prey to it anymore. So it, and, you know, it's one illustration of that, you know, the image can be used to just be much more alluring, enticing and inviting for people to click on and therefore lead to advertising revenue. The other interesting thing that's happening is that X or Twitter is becoming less and less a news medium. I mean, there used to be a time, and you and I both remember it very well, when Twitter was very, a very promising platform for news storytelling. It was threatening in some ways. It was um, mystifying. It also was very vulnerable to inaccuracy, but it was also very helpful in connecting us to forms of, you know, multi-platform, multi-modal really just sort of on the spot, immediate news storytelling, that's no longer going to be the case. You know, X is going to become a platform for for PR. And that's where they're headed with a subscription model that's going to be friendly, not so much to news organizations, but rather organizations that are, you know, very firmly in the realm of PR and when they share information, it's in the context of, you know, reputational management, you know, brand enhancement, and so on. You're making me very sad, ZZ. I I am very sad about this, too. Yeah, I mean, I think there were some very, for people who who study or teach media and journalism, there were some very exciting things going on in Twitter. I would say somewhere around 2018, the Twitter thread really became a new delivery system for information, right? You, You saw people who were trying to tell sometimes a, a complex or nuanced or layered story, adapt Twitter by building threads. And, you know, Twitter was a, one time talked in terms of you know, microblogging, but this was almost sort of medium blogging or macro blogging. I mean, that was a very exciting idea that you could tell a story in these little chunks going through a Twitter thread, right? Yes, it was very promising. And because truth is a puzzle, you know, made up of many different pieces and you're only able to see the full picture when that puzzle is completed. I think in some ways, you know, a platform like Twitter really helped us, you know, just in real time, but over the course of, you know, the long durée, piece together the different layers of a particular story so that we could make sense of it and so that we could tell it better. So it is unfortunate. I'm not going to blame Elon Musk for it, though. You know, I'm going to I'm going to lay the blame for that on people who started using um Twitter as a platform for branding, for getting their own agenda across and for promoting, you know, their own political agenda in particular. So I think we saw a change in terms of how Twitter was being used and it being used for purposes that had to do with political information dissemination and in some ways political propaganda with President Trump and how he made use of the platform, which was genius, served him very well. 
and also made Twitter some revenue for a very long period of time, but eventually contributed to, you know, uh, the tendency to look at platform, not just for news sharing, but also for proselytizing followers. I think there's another sort of McLuhan-esque pivot that happens mm-hmm. as kind of as a result of uh, of Trump that that touches on the whole idea of headlines. And I'm not saying that uh, push notifications and Trump are are coterminous, but I remember in 2016 that I remember having this very kind of McLuhan-y moment where I realized that I was carrying in my pocket or lying on the passenger seat next to me in a car. I was carrying a little device which would tell me when there was news. And because Trump made a lot of news, I mean, I have a very Mm -hmm. vivid memory of James Comey getting fired. But Mm -hmm. the memory is a push notification, which is not exactly the same thing as a headline, right? It could be the same thing as a headline. But we suddenly had this device in our pocketbooks or jacket pockets or something that would give us something like a headline with a kind of real-time feel to it. So tell me what you think about all that. Colin, I think that's the future. I think that's such a wonderful uh, example that you shared. You know, um, I have a memory as well, you know, of studying online news when it first appeared and having conversations with people who would say, you know, I am never going to put down my newspaper. You know, I enjoy reading the print version of the newspaper so much in my favorite coffee shop or, you know, if I'm taking the train to work, that's never, ever going to change. And I would say in response that, you know, you're not going to stop reading the news, but you're not going to be reading it on paper. You're going to be reading it on a different device. And, you know, that's your phone, that's your tablet. And increasingly, it's going to be a number of different interconnected platforms that are going to give you subtle alerts that eventually over time, you're going to effectively associate with when something happened. I think it's very promising. I am excited about that. But I am also weary about it because it heightens the way that we're emotionally connected to how we receive the news and how we respond to them. And so I would want to make sure that, you know, we remember to value that emotional connection to the story, but also allow ourselves some time to process it in our heads so that we don't respond or react too quickly to something that we were, you know, buzzed about. All right. We'll have to stop there, although I could talk to you for a very long time. But Zizi Zizi Papakarisi is professor and head of the communication department and professor of political science at University of Illinois, Chicago, uh, the editor of Trump and the Media. And her newest book uh, is After Democracy, Imagining Our Political Future. Thank you so much for spending some precious time with us today. My pleasure. Thank you for the conversation. Um, We'll take a little break. We'll come back. Hi, I'm Ray Hartman. Season 3 of Where Art Thou is just around the corner. I'll be back on the road meeting incredible Connecticut artists. You'll hear their stories and we'll throw in a few surprises as well. Season 3 of Where Art Thou premieres June 9th on CPTV. For more, visit ctpublic.org WAT. Support provided by the Richard P. Garmany Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving, the State of Connecticut Office of Film, Television, and Digital Media, and Connecticut Humanities. And we are back. Uh, it's time to say some thank yous. Our technical producer today, as is the case most days, is Kat Pastor. The senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show is Lily Tyson. She produced this episode as well. 
Um, I just have to say one quick thing, uh, and I'll say it while our guest can hear it, too. Scott Dickers is coming up. Scott Dickers has been with us before, founding editor of The Onion and author of um, How to Write Funny and other books about humor writing. Um, you know, this whole conversation, Scott, that we've been having so far on this show, I mean, I sort of came up through the old-fashioned newspaper system, uh, and there were these headline writers who had to you know, fit headlines into space. There were sometimes one-column headlines. Uh, and if you worked for a tabloid, uh, there was a lot of pressure to come up with very small words so you could make the type bigger. Uh, I think Dave Barry said the ultimate tabloid he- headline was Tot Eats Goat Face, uh, just to sort of you know, get it as huge as it possibly could. And it's weird because as we, as we transitioned over to digital, where the the space was a lot more flexible, it just felt like what you know Robert Frost said: free verse was like playing tennis without a net. I sort of feel like headline writing is like that too, except that Scott Dickers, you in 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 your Onion days and the Onion writers and headline writers in general, they do you guys do go after a kind of style, right? There's a DNA to headline writing that never goes away, even if the entire delivery system changes. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that, though, about headlines getting longer, because I remember this thing happening at The Onion. It was about 2012 when the head writers started writing headlines that were a lot longer because we had kind of transitioned to being more of a digital publication, less print. I think our print uh, last print publication went down 2013, something like that. And... I really had to come down and I'm like, what is, what is all these extra words? What are you doing? <laughs> the whole point of, of the onion headline joke is to be a parody of a newspaper headline. And this is a language that people understand. And part of that language is it's as short as humanly possible. And it's also just a good rule of thumb for any writing, but especially any humor writing concision, you know, brevity is the source of wit. Yeah, we, I'll give you an example of this. Uh, it's one of your favorites. Uh, study, colon, babies are stupid. So four words plus a piece of punctuation, that's kind of, that. that's what you're talking about when you talk about concision, right? Yeah, and when you do little things like that in an Onion headline, and when you say report, colon, it makes it funnier because people don't talk like that. It's a weird sentence. It's a weird way to word a joke. So when you see it, you're immediately reminded of newspaper headlines and the way they are. So that's a parody that triggers, you know, a laugh because like, oh, I recognize that. I've seen newspapers do that. And isn't it silly how they do that? And it just makes it funnier. And, you know, babies are stupid is also funny because it's true. Oh, absolutely. And and yeah, there's I mean, so study colon is headlinees for. Absolutely. There was a study done that says this. Um, right and and that yeah. that that's sort of the language that you're sort of making fun of. I'm kind of wondering also, were you guys capable of appreciating it when a, a conventional kind of legacy newspaper would would come up with something that, for example, uh, the New York Times uh, had a, I think it was, must have been a science story about eels about moray eels, but the headline was when an eel climbs a ramp to eat squid from a clamp, that's a moray. Um, which is clever, which is witty. I don't know. It's clever, but it's insufferable. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you for being exactly who I wanted you to be at that moment. Uh, no, that's that's the worst. So how do we feel about that? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, like I guess I guess, guess you just answered that question, but answer it some more if you want to. 
Yeah, no, I, I mean, I can give you a little more context. I noticed right around the late 90s, early 2000s that what The Onion was doing and it was being very successful at, you know, the internet market crashed in 2001 and then in 2008, the print market crashed. And so a lot of journalism, print journalism, that is, was really nervous that, oh my God, what's happening? But they saw the onion growing and thriving during that time. <laughs> and I think they looked at what the onion was doing and they said, we should be more like that. We should do funny headlines. We should do grabber headlines because maybe that's why people aren't reading us. Maybe that's why we're going out of business. And I noticed it at first in um, the publication Entertainment Weekly. <laughs> they were really trying hard to make their headlines be funnier. I noticed it in particular. And then I started seeing it in Time magazine, Newsweek magazine. So it doesn't surprise me at all that the New York Times would do it. But of course, they would do it in the least hip way that you possibly could. They would do it. This is like an old, you know, member of Mensa <laughs> trying to write a funny headline. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so also a little bit like the episode of The West Wing where they all have to write some jokes for Martin Sheen's character. And they're all talking about bringing the funny. We've got to bring the funny. And you just think right. these guys are policy wonks. They're not funny. Aaron Sorkin isn't really that funny either. This is not, there's not going to be any funny. Uh, there's going right. to be, hey, you, be funny, which n never really works. Hey, no. one of the things that one of the sort of op operating principles for The Onion and, and similar efforts is I think what you would probably call the Norman, Norm MacDonald principle. Uh, do you want to explain what that is? Yes. Yeah, so Norm MacDonald, when he was doing Weekend Update, I don't think he knew what The Onion was, <laughs> but <laughs> he, he thought, and it was pretty early. I forget when he did it. I want to say early 90s so you know i don't blame him for not knowing what the onion was very few people did he said that the ideal joke the sort of holy grail of a joke was when you could have the setup and the punchline in one sentence so there'd be no pause there'd be no like two parts and at the onion i don't know if people outside the onion know this we don't call them headlines we call them jokes mm. that's that's literally the word we use for them when we're sitting around in a writer's room coming up with them, it's like jokes. You got a list of jokes. Oh, let's get a joke. We got to get a good joke for the front page this week. <laughs> That's just the word we use. And so all the headlines at The Onion are that Norm MacDonald holy grail of one sentence joke with setup and punchline in as few words as possible. So we get kitten thinks of nothing but murder all day. We get archaeological dig uncovers ancient race of skeleton people. We get CIA realizes it's been using black highlighters all these years. Um, yeah. So the joke is all there. Oddly enough, when Norm was asked to explain what he meant by that or give an example, the example he gave was actually two sentences. I don't think I can do Norm MacDonald. I've never tried. Julia Roberts. No, I can't do it. Julia Roberts told... Actually, I can try to do Norm. There you go. That's not there. bad. That's, not, that's a good Norm. <laughs> norm. Yeah. yeah. Ju Julia Roberts told reporters this week that her marriage to Lyle Lovett has been over for some time. The key moment, she said, came when she realized that she was Julia Roberts and that she was married to Lyle Lovett. Uh, first yeah. of all, as a Lyle Lovett fan, I object to that. But but it's actually two sentences. It's really too long. It's, yeah, it's, it's it like, doesn't even. I wish that he had uh, opened his eyes and see, <laughs> discovered the onion. He would have been like, ah, oh, okay, I, I see. So, uh, but uh, yeah, I agree. I've heard I've heard him use that uh, that joke, and I thought the same thing. Wait a minute, that's two sentences. There's a setup and a punchline. What are you talking about? <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, 
Does the current environment, or earlier in the show, I was talking about when I was writing a lot for Salon, and they would write these just outrageous clickbait head- headlines that didn't really resemble what I've written. But do you think that's shaped The Onion, too? The fact that, you know, yeah, we have we have Toddy Go- Goat's Face, we have, you know, uh, Headless Body and Topless Bar from the old days. But now there's a new environment of trying to make things go viral. And Do you think The Onion is comically responding to that? Yeah, absolutely. It was tricky at first when it first started happening because we had kind of picked our lane and our lane was we're making fun of traditional newspaper headlines. Ideally, what we had in our heads was kind of like the big city newspaper, not the New York Times, because that's way too kind of its own thing. But like, you know, the Boston Globe, let's say, or the Chicago Sun-Times, that's what we were thinking. So when things like BuzzFeed started happening and all this online magnetic headlines and clickbait, we didn't really have a way to respond to that directly. So we created a whole new brand, which was ClickHole, which a lot of people don't realize was created by The Onion because, I don't know, they just, nobody's digging into it. Nobody's doing any um, detective work. But it's a website that parodies sites like that with clickbaity headlines like buzzfeed only they're silly and funny and it's a it's a wonderful i'm not involved it's it's a wonderful hole like a like a what are they the wormhole that you can get into with the internet uh it's a wonderful wormhole to go on to click hole because i mean you hear it in the name it's like it's it's a click hole <laughs> you're gonna click yourself into a hole yeah, beautiful. I think you have to get into a rabbit hole to go to the wormhole, and then you get to the click hole from there. There's like a map. Yeah, somewhere. I forgot Maybe. rabbit hole. That is yeah, the rabbit first hole in there somewhere. It's very Correct. complicated. There's too many holes. So this yeah. will be the last thing we have time for. In just about a minute. One thing that the Onion has, I think, struggled with is it's hard to be sufficiently hilarious and satirical uh, and still avoid reality. So you have headlines yeah. like Bush, our long national nightmare of peace and prosperity is finally over, when that Paul Krugman wrote a whole article saying that actually happened. Uh, yeah. Or uh, F everything, we're doing five blades, an editorial by the CEO of Gillette, and then they do it. So I don't know. I'm only giving you about 30 or 45 seconds here to, to talk about that. But it's sort of weird, right? It's hard to... It's hard to avoid the truth. Yeah, well, when you're doing comedy, you realize that real life is always funnier than comedy. You can't compete. <laughs> you literally cannot compete. Uh, so when you come up with a, a joke using the tools of comedy that actually ends up happening in real life, it's like you've literally achieved like you know the greatest possible hope and dream that you could have to approach the level of humor that's possible with real life. So that's a crowning achievement and a great moment. It's a good thing. It's a so good I love feeling. those headlines. Yeah. Oh, it's a wonderful feeling. Yeah. All right. Scott... And it just makes the original headline funnier. Too. <laughs> All right, Scott Diggers, uh, unfortunately, we have to stop here. Founding editor of The Onion, thanks for coming back here. Author of How to Write Funny and other books about humor writing. We got to say goodbye. The headline is we're leaving. I don't know. I should have come up with something better than that. But we're leaving. But thanks for listening. And we will be back tomorrow the way we always are. <laughs> 